Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. So I want to tell you about our new sponsor of the podcast, Thrive Market. As many of you know, I recently became a dad. My wife, Colleen, and I have an eight-month-old baby girl, Ellie. It's not an exaggeration when I say that as a new parent, Thrive Market has been a complete lifesaver, which is why I'm so excited that we've teamed up with them to offer you $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership. Yep, you heard that right, $60 of free groceries. It's a crazy good deal and it's going to save you a ton of money on food and products that'll make you feel absolutely amazing. And you can get all the details by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. Again, thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. If you haven't heard of Thrive Market, it's an online marketplace that's made up of 100% healthy and organic products, the type of premium food, household cleaners, and bathroom products you'd see on MPG. Except on Thrive, everything is 25 to 50% off retail price. They do this by taking out the middleman. They work with brands directly and then pass those savings on to their customers. For Colleen and I, the convenience has been a huge part of it. Everything on Thrive Market is hyper curated, so we're not scrolling through endless lists trying to find the one or two brands that meet our admittedly stringent standards. In Brooklyn, where we live, you often find yourself going to one store for collagen powder, another store for organic soap, another store for the right brand of BPA-free canned beans. It can take hours. And as someone running a major wellness media company, that's time I simply don't have. Thrive Market is one-stop shopping. Everything on the site is amazing, but beyond that, you can click to sort by vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, paleo, etc. You can even sort by more out there things. For instance, as you know, we're big into gut health on MBG. And as you might not know, Colleen is actually a big snacker. So on Thrive Market, you can go to the snack section and click to filter by snacks that contain probiotics. That was how we actually discovered the farmhouse culture kraut crisps, which contain billions of probiotics and are dangerously good. Check them out at thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen. We've also been loving the lifestyle categories. Browsing the mom section was how Colleen stumbled across the organic gripe water that's been a game changer for Ellie's teething pain. I didn't even know what gripe water was, to be honest, and I definitely didn't know that there was an organic version. But thanks to Thrive Market, we now have a happy baby on our hands. And get this, it's normally $12.50 at your local health food store, but only $8.50 on Thrive Market. We recently held our annual Revitalize event in Arizona, where we debuted our new motto, You, We, All. At MBG, we think it's so important to reap the benefits of wellness on an individual level. Sure, we all want to feel amazing and live our best lives, but recently, we've really focused on expanding that message. We believe that wellness can change the world and that people who feel good can affect amazing change, which is why I'm so excited to hear about Thrive Market's one-for-one program. For everyone that signs up, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher to help make healthy living affordable for everyone. Okay, so here's the deal. Right now, you can get up to $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. I'd start in the staple section where you'll find the kind of wellness essentials that we recommend on MindBuddyGreen daily, and then work your way out from there, depending on your own needs and preferences. 
Keep in mind, all of their prices are already up to 50% off, and now they're giving you an extra $60 free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash mybuddygreen. But be careful with the Kraut Crisps, though. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, now let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. It is an honor to have Mark Sisson on the podcast today. Someone I've followed for years through his blog, Mark's Daily Apple and Primal Kitchen, one of my favorite brands. I I can't stop eating their bars and their salad dressing. And someone who is a pioneer in health and wellness. Uh, Many consider the godfather of the paleo movement, although his views do differ, as you will see. And you've never seen a 64-year-old man with abs like Mark. It is an honor to have Mark with us on the podcast today. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Congratulations on the new book, which we will talk about, The Keto Reset Diet. Everyone needs to pick up. I agree. Everyone needs to pick up. (laughs) But we're going to go back in time and start at Williams College when you were the aspiring doctor and, and what happened? What, 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 what went what, wrong? Exactly. Uh, I'd grown up in a small fishing village in Maine uh, and was uh, always felt a little bit out of place uh, in that setting. Uh, some family friends, uh, two in fact, uh, friends of my parents had been physicians, and I was very in awe of what they did. And uh, I actually went into an operating theater when I was uh, 14 years old. I skipped school one day, was invited to watch a five-hour operation, scrub down, scrub up, and, and put... Uh, put the um, the outfit on and and actually watch in real time uh, I was mesmerized so I decided I want to be a physician a doctor early on and actually I want to be a plastic surgeon back when plastic surgery was plastic more about, surgery in Maine that no, would have thought no, so. no but back when it was more about fixing you know broken maimed sure. body parts than it was boobs and 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 lifts anyway I went to Williams with the idea of becoming a physician I was always interested in biology so I took uh, the biology track there. And over the years, as I pursued the the educational component of that, I was also putting myself through school as a contractor. And I was making a lot of money. I made more money than my dad did. So like a year. general contractor, yeah. fixing stuff? Yeah. And a paint, mostly painting contracting, but I would do everything. I would do additions and whatnot. And, and actually, I uh, took my dorm room and I built within my dorm room another room. So I paneled it. I did, I did wall-to-wall carpeting and paneling and built all my own furniture. Were you renting that out? Early Airbnb? <laughs> no, I wish. I wish it had been. But um, somebody who had been in the room two years before had come back for an alumni weekend and looked at the room and got and, and we started talking. He said, what, what are you doing? And uh, what's your path? And I said, well, I want to be a, a physician. And the guy goes, why? Because look at what you're doing here. You know, <laughs> you're very successful in this already. Why don't you think about that? And I don't know what it was. It was the um, a combination of not being passionate about medicine the way I had been when I was 12 or 13. Uh, it was the grind of trying to, you know, to do all the work to get into medical school. 
And it was also the fact that I was becoming fairly successful as a runner. I was a captain of the cross-country team. I was doing uh, road racing events in the summer and succeeding at that. So I started to think in terms of the Olympic Games as maybe my next move before medical school. So it's like Frank Shorter, your idol back then? Yeah, I mean, we were <laughs> basically, you know, he, he won gold in 72. Yeah. Um, I graduated in 75, so that was about the same time things were happening. And he certainly turned on the spigot for running in the U.S. Sure. Absolutely. And then Bill Rogers right after him. Anyway, at, at, at the end of my junior year, I started to reassess, you know, what I wanted from life. I started to think in terms of, well, maybe I'll just I'll postpone medical school for a couple of years and pursue this running thing because I'm good at it. And so I did. I, I, I graduated continued to support myself as a contractor, traveled around the world entering races. And by the way, there was no money to be made as a distance runner in those days. You did it for the love of the sport and for the the, the trophy or whatever. Yeah. And uh, within a few years, as I got better and better and moved to the West Coast and joined a top track team, road racing team, I started this this vision of becoming a physician sort of faded in the in the rearview mirror, if you will. And I became a fairly successful business person, uh, supporting myself and making a good living doing what I was doing. And I, so I say that I postponed medical school. It's been, you know, 35 years now or whatever. <laughs> you would have just gotten out. Yeah, I would have just, no, that's... <laughs> You'd have your loans, no, your no, loans finally done. No, and that's, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, that's, that's another way to look at it. And, you know, kind of fast forward, in retrospect, everything's perfect. And in retrospect, my involvement in health and wellness and in researching and in writing Mark's Daily Apple and in writing the Primal Blueprint and all the books that I've done. I've certainly done more good in the world in terms of uh, advancing the notion of, of self-care and wellness than I ever could have done in a one-on-one -on -one setting as a physician. Sure. And so you're running and you're competing and I think you finished fourth in an Ironman World Championship and, and then what happens? You don't, you don't, you've changed a bit. Yeah, a lot. Uh, well, my mindset has changed. When I was competitive, um, I was very competitive, and I was very driven, and I trained as hard as I could because that's what you did. I mean, I remember reading at some point about some of the other runners in the country who were putting in 150 miles a week of training, and I felt inadequate only averaging 100 miles a week of training <laughs> in, my, in my marathon preparation. And, you know, uh, in retrospect, that was a lot of miles. 100 miles a week is a lot of miles, and it clearly wore me down. And having done uh, research on my genetics, my DNA having been tested, subsequently I realized that I wasn't really cut out to be a world-class endurance athlete. I'm sort of on that borderline of endurance and strength, which is a good thing for me now. But in those days, you know, you needed to be 85, 90% endurance in terms of your genetic predisposition. And I was like 50 5% endurance. So I'm quite clear that I extracted as much out of my body as I possibly could. So there was no more to squeeze, you know, out of that particular part of me. And as a result of that hard training, and, and definitely as a result of the diet that was required to fuel all those miles, or so I thought was required, uh, this sort of very high carbohydrate based diet, which was also heavy in grains, uh, was heavy in you know, loaves of bread and bowls of pasta and six packs of beer. Uh, <laughs> beer was a legitimate carbo-loading, um, you know, component. That I was not only overtraining for my particular body type, but I was also engaged in this highly inflammatory diet, which was just exacerbating the overuse injuries that I was creating from the work. 
So at the age of literally 29, I kind of limped away from it all, unable to train anywhere near the capacity that I felt was required to be competitive. At that point, I'd been training for the, for the 1980 U.S. Olympic trials. I'd qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon. Wow. Um, that was the year that we didn't send a team. And as the race drew nearer and nearer and my mileage became 40 miles a week and 30 miles a week, and I was hobbling through that, I just said, this is, this is not sustainable in any way, shape, or form. So I limped away from marathoning, and I did have a two-, three-year stint as a triathlete because I could ride a bike um, without incurring the sort of arthritic pains that I got from the pounding. You're still running a marathon, though, but on you're top still of running. that. <laughs> yeah, but I could, I could do that, you know, almost on memory. Uh, and that's how I wound up finishing fourth at Ironman is that, you know, I, I, I was <laughs> a sufficient enough swimmer to not drown. And I, was a, I became a very good cyclist. And then I was able to sort of pull it together for the, for the marathon. But at that point, at, at, that was when I said, okay, this is just like lunacy to be training hard, to be enduring this sort of pain, suffering, and sacrifice, and, and not have it be fun. I mean, really, these endurance events, they're great if people want to do them, and they're great as a, as a notch in your belt, as a bucket list item, you know, to sort of prove your mettle to yourself, but they're not fun. And at, there's a point at which the management of pain just becomes, uh, if that's all there is in, in becoming a competitive athlete, your willingness to dig deeper than the next guy, or your willingness to go to the well, or your willingness to hurt yourself more than the next guy. And, and because there was no money to be gained from it, it was still all amateur sport. I just sort of said, this is, this is kind of ridiculous. And I turned my attention more toward my original goals, which had been to achieve good health and be that strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy, productive human that I felt I, I wanted to be, I deserved to be, that was my birthright, that was, that was in my genes, but I'd lost sight of over the years. That's the point at which I kind of rededicated my pursuit of wellness to include being reasonably fit, but not supremely fit. And I say, you know, I've, I've made a joke for the last 20 years, 30 years, it's better to look fit than to be fit. <laughs> and there's an element of truth that goes along with that. And I wanted to be uh, healthy, and I wanted to enjoy life. So much of my pursuit of exercise modalities has now included, is it fun? You know, mm. can I have fun while I'm moving, rather than am I just managing pain again and again and again? And that's kind of been my through line. So that's why I find myself, for the last 15 years, playing ultimate Frisbee once a week with 20-somethings. It's the most <laughs> fun I have all week. Or I'll, you know, I, I love going on a lone stand-up paddling excursion. I might go out for an hour and a half, you know, into the ocean and hang out with dolphins and whales sometimes and sea turtles and and just be in that kind of zone where I'm I'm enjoying every single minute of it. I'm not managing pain. I'm out there actually getting a great workout that's has an element of cardio to it, but I'm never thinking, oh my gosh, when is it going to be over? I'm kind of thinking, oh my gosh, I better get back because I have a call to make or a, or a meeting to attend. I love the snowboard. Uh, so I try to find these pursuits now that are fun, that still challenge my body enough that, that I benefit you know, aerobically, uh, biomechanically, range of motion, things like that. So what does that evolution look like from carbo-loading, beer, pasta, you know, in, in endurance for enduring pain? What does that process look like from from then, and what did that what did that look like? We're like, okay, I'm done with this, and yeah. and I don't really know if what I'm eating is making me feel good, and 
I want to be fit, but I don't want to run yeah. 100 miles a week. What is that? It, well, it's a, and it is a process because there's an element of... Um, because I'm sure you didn't go from like 100 miles a week to oh, ultimate frisbee. No, 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 like no there exactly. Was a, you sound like George Carlin when you said that, too. <laughs> uh, God rest his soul. Yeah. Uh, no, there was a, certainly an evolution because there's something in the mind that I can't access anymore, and I haven't been able to access it for 20 years. But during those times, got to get up, got to run, got to get up and ride the bike 100 miles, got to get up and do this. It was a, it's almost like a sociopathic kind of twist in the brain that says I don't care how tired you are you need to do this or you're going to be you you know you'll be guilty for the rest of the day for not having worked out so that mindset once you can get there it helps you become a top endurance athlete but it also once you decide to stop competing that little voice is still there every day so it took me five years to wind down my training wow it took me five years of kind of thinking to myself, you know, you're not a piece of crap if you don't train today. You're actually okay with that. Have you made this I love thing? that. Yeah. You're not a piece of crap if you don't train today. Yeah, and yet I, I know that there will be a lot of age group athletes listening to this who will identify 100% with that kind of concept. So as the years went on and the amount of training dropped and I found that I wasn't getting fat, I also discovered that, you know, I was having – I was certainly buying into this new notion that fats were actually not bad for you. So I started incorporating healthy fats into my diet. At the same time, I started to understand that I didn't need to be carbo-loading because I wasn't training that much anymore. So I dropped the carbs way down. I say way down from three, from 700 grams a day to like 250, right? But that's still a lot. But about 17 years ago, the final piece of the puzzle fell into place for me, and that was when I gave up grains. Hmm. And I realized... So much of what had caused me pain and suffering in my life that I had attributed to training and stress, the osteoarthritis in my feet, the chronic tendonitis in my hips and other parts of my body. And how old are you when you experience You're pretty young when you're experiencing this. Uh, well, I, it started, I started experiencing these issues when I was, well, first of all, let me go through the list because sure. like, I had irritable bowel syndrome since I was 14, like the kind that literally dictated how I would move throughout the day. Where's the nearest bathroom? Where's, you know, like planning ahead in case an episode arises. During my training days, I had upper respiratory tract infections six or eight times a year. That was my only time off was if I couldn't run because I had a severe cold or something. You know, I had gastroesophageal reflux. I had heartburn, not on a regular basis, but, you know, if you have it more than three times a week, it's not a good thing. I had all of these, all these issues, many of which I'd had from the age of 14. But as I got older, as I got into my 30s and 40s, I started to get arthritis in my fingers. I'd had osteoarthritis in my feet because of the running, but then I was developing arthritis in my fingers. And I thought, you know, at the in my early 40s, I thought, well, this is a natural part of getting older. I'm, I'm developing an arthritic condition. It's a little painful to shake hands with, with some people, and I can't really grip a golf club the way I'd like to, but whatever, that's just a part of, of, of getting older. So when I finally you know, engaged in this 30-day elimination of grains. And again, this goes back now only, I'm going to say only 17 or 18 years ago. It was literally, I say the final piece of the puzzle was transformative. It completely opened the world up to me. My arthritis went away. That fingertip stuff or that middle finger thing that I had went away. The osteoarthritis in my 
feet that every day uh, when I woke up, I'd have to take 20 minutes of hobbling to kind of warm up enough to walk normally. That went away. The IBS that I'd had since I was 14 that dictated how I went through the day, that went away. That was unbelievable to me that I would be in the health research field and be writing about grains and how potentially antithetical they were to health and yet to have defended my right to eat grains because I'd been doing it for so long and I wasn't celiac and I never drew the connection until I did this elimination experiment and that was really when I, I, I thought to myself my god this is unbelievable I'm, I'm as aware a person as you're going to find in health and wellness and, and I was oblivious to the fact that, that in my case, grains were the cause of so much of my pain and suffering. So I thought at that point, if I'm approaching it this way, imagine how many tens of millions of people are assuming the same thing. They're assuming that their systemic inflammation, that their polycystic ovarian syndrome, that even their type 2 diabetes, that, that all of this is sort of a natural part of getting older and that there's nothing they can do about it. And that's really what led me to start writing more uh, in detail about the dietary component of wellness and, and fitness prompted me a few years later to start uh, Mark's Daily Apple sure, uh, and to kind of espouse this worldview that I'd been formulating in my head uh, that was certainly working for me. And, it, and because I'd been a personal trainer on and off for 20 years, starting in the mid-80s, I'd trained a lot of uh, elite athletes, and then I trained uh, average citizens who just wanted to lose weight, and then I'd written one or two books on the training aspect of that. So I'd started to see some of the results, not just in myself, but in people that I'd been working with. And that's really what got me to this point where I'm, uh, I'm quite clear that there is a dietary component to just about every malady that, that people are complaining about today and people are suffering from. In some cases, that malady be, can, can be cured by a dietary adjustment. In many cases, can't be cured, but can certainly be mitigated by making some adaptations to, sure. to your diet. So how do you eat today, and how do you recommend you know, someone out there who, average person, doing okay, but wants to feel a bit better, look a bit better? A lot of information out there. A lot of information. You know, and we are, all, we are all unique individuals, and there's no one-size-fits-all, but there are some general principles. Like, what are those principles for you? Well, the principles for me are... First of all, get rid of all the sugar you possibly can in your diet. I've been saying for 10 years, and I picked this up from some of my mentors like Dr. Ron Rosedale, the less glucose you burn in your lifetime, probably the longer you'll live and the healthier you'll be. So if we can find ways to remove sugar, whether it's the sugared drinks, the sweetened beverages, the, the cakes, the pies, the candies, the cookies, the muffins, the, you know, the kind of the obvious offenders... That would be number one. Number two would be get to get rid of the industrial seed oils. That would be these processed, highly processed oils that are high in omega-6 fatty acids that can be pro-inflammatory. Uh, we're talking about canola oil, soybean oil, corn oil. These are derived from seed, uh, grass seeds. And in their stead, uh, replace with uh, avocado oil, avocados, extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil, butter, ghee, lard, things like that. And then ultimately, uh, for a lot of people, it's getting rid of grains. It's it, largely getting rid of processed flours, which basically convert to glucose, i.e. sugar, in the bloodstream anyway. So if you're getting rid of the sugars, you may as well get rid of the processed grains. And for a lot of people, it's getting rid of the whole grains. It's getting rid of those grains that contain 
gluten or gluten-like components that are offensive in, in one, one way or another to a large percentage of the population. Not everyone, but I think it would behoove everyone to, you know, to give it a try and, right. and go grain-free for 30 days. Those are the three major components. Now, how I live my life now, I've been low-carb for 15 years. So low-carb for me means less than 150 grams a day every day. When you get rid of sugar, when you get rid of bread and pasta and cereal, when you get rid of uh, fruit juices and things like that, you know, you're left with not a lot of potent carb sources. They're all delicious and they're all highly nutritious, lots of green leafy vegetables. I mean, vegetables are still the, the basis of my, the bulk of my diet are vegetables. Some fruit, an occasional starchy tuber. Uh, but that's, it's difficult to exceed 150 grams of carbs a day when you do that. So I've been low carb for a long time. What that does is it has sent signals to my genes to upregulate enzymes that burn fat to increase the amount of mitochondria through which fat get burned Mm -hmm. in the cells, makes me more metabolically flexible, makes me less dependent on having to eat every couple of hours. And it's been a great, easy, manageable, totally sustainable way of living for me for 15 years. Now recently, because I'm always, I'm always that kind of N equals one, experimental scientist, kind of like, what's next? Is there mm-hmm. something out there? Is, there? is the next level available? Uh, I've been writing about ketogenic diets for on and off for 10 years. And I've been in, in ketosis for days at a time uh, throughout those 10 years, not necessarily by design, sometimes by accident. I might look back on a day and say, wow, I only had 50 grams of, of carbs today total. But I thought, I'm going to look into this whole keto thing and see if there's another level of benefits available to me. So about a year ago, I went two months deep keto, and, and it was really quite profound. I, had, I, I found myself with more energy. I found myself with better mental acuity. I found myself able to sleep a little bit less every night. I found that really, really interesting. I was able to maintain muscle mass, uh, in fact, build more muscle in the face of eating fewer calories a day and having cut my carbs way down. I noticed a reduction in, and again, some of these are very subtle differences because I was like totally cool with where I was before, but I wanted to see if there was a next level. Maybe explain to people too, for, you know, those like, I think there are misconceptions around ketosis too. Just explain what that diet, the the, the framework is. So the framework is basically you are intentionally withholding either carbohydrates or calories from your daily diet so that you prompt your body to become really good at burning its own stored body fat. And in the process of becoming good at burning body fat, one of the byproducts of that is that the liver also gets a signal that there's not going to be much glucose coming in through carbohydrate and exogenous feeding of of carbs. So the liver has this extremely elegant system of manufacturing what I call a super fuel. It's called ketones, ketone bodies. Uh, And these ketones can be used as fuel in the brain. So in the absence of any glucose coming in, you can run the muscles almost entirely on free fatty acids, on fats that come from either a plate of food or from your butt or thighs you know, stored on you. And almost in a closed loop system, you create these ketones that then fuel the brain. And over time, the ketones have their own epigenetic signaling properties. And so ketones can prompt your body to want to make even more mitochondria and can prompt the body to make the mitochondria you do have more efficient. So you build over time greater metabolic flexibility. Hmm. You can burn fats, you can burn carbohydrates, you can burn ketones. And part of that flexibility is not depending on burning 
proteins anymore because in the old carbohydrate paradigm before you know we become good at burning fat and we're only good at burning carbs one of the downsides to that is in the absence of carbs the body looks to tear down muscle tissue mm -hmm. to to send some of those amino acids to the liver to become glucose to fuel the brain all of that is flipped on its side when you become keto adapted now you don't need the glucose because the brain knows how to burn ketones you've built all this metabolic machinery to burn fats and to burn ketones so the idea is that you trend toward your ideal body composition there are also some epigenetic properties of these ketone bodies that decrease inflammation throughout the body hmm. one of the most uh, compelling areas of research right now is in the anti-aging movement which looks at what happens at the level of the cell uh, when you're in ketosis when you've built this metabolic flexibility and when you've withheld sufficient carbohydrate that the body no longer has to rely on you eating every couple of hours the cells look inward to see what kind of what kind of repairs what kind of house cleaning can i do i can take some damaged proteins and some damaged fats i can literally consume those and not only get rid of them because they're causing issues but use them as fuel because i'll burn them as fuel in the mitochondria the cell looks to do to repair some of the damaged dna components in those in those episodes so so much of this cool stuff happens when we're not eating when we've put the body into a um, either through choosing not to eat um, i hate to use the word starvation or intermittent fasting or intermittent yeah. fasting where you just you eat you eat on sort of regular intervals where you you have a compressed eating window during which time you take in calories and then a longer window in my case it's 18 hours a day where i'm not eating and all the cool stuff is happening in the body you know, all of that anti-aging stuff, all that anti-inflammatory stuff, all that muscle building stuff, all of those signaling that we talk about happens when, when you're not eating. Uh, so and what is your 18-hour? Talk to me about what that looks like for you, that, that day where you're intermittent fasting for so 18 just, hours. I'll just, let you finish your no, talk. No, 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 that's fine. Day. So I, I'll talk about that. But one of the most compelling things leading into this is that when you become keto-adapted, hunger, appetite, and cravings are very much suppressed. So you don't feel like you're living from one meal to the next. Like, oh, Jason, we can't meet at lunch because I need to eat lunch. You know, we, so we can't have a noon meeting. We have to postpone it till 2 o'clock. Uh, that kind of stuff, which is ridiculous when you think about having to orchestrate your entire day based around when you, you know, when you eat. So it's so empowering to access this new way of living, which is... In my case, I wake up in the morning, I have all the energy I need, I don't feel hungry, so I certainly don't feel compelled to eat. There's no reason to eat if I'm not hungry. I'm so good at burning fat, if I do say so myself, <laughs> um, and I'm so good at making ketones that my body just naturally clicks into this, to this sustainable, self-sustainable window of activity. So I get up, I'll, I will have a cup of coffee in the morning, but not, you know, not a bulletproof kind of thing. I don't put calories in my coffee, I'm going to put a little cream. And then I'll, uh, I'll read a couple of papers quickly to get a handle on what's going on in the day. And yes, I do read actual physical newspapers. I'm one of the few people left. I still get the Wall Street Journal every day. You got to, man. <laughs> That's one of the ones I read. And, uh, and then I go to work and I answer emails and I might finish a blog post and I might, you know, take a couple of calls. Then I'll break at 10 o'clock. I'll go to the gym and do a, a hard gym workout or I might go for a paddle or I might go for a hike or I might, you know, whatever. I'll do a workout. And by that time, I'm, you would call that workout fasted. I don't eat after the workout. I don't feel compelled to eat after the workout. During that workout, I have burned mostly fats. 
And to the extent that I've required any glucose or glycogen in my muscles, it's because I'd naturally rebuilt a glycogen storage. I'd recovered some of my glycogen from the previous workout that I might have done two or three days prior, so I didn't need to carbo-load to get there. Uh, and then I might eat my first meal at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's typically a big salad. It's typically a... Uh, that's another thing that people think about keto. Well, you can't have salads because salads are, you know... Vegetables have carbs, and that's going to kick you out of ketosis. No, I have a big salad uh, with a lot of a big piece of protein on it. I mean, a lot, 25, 30 grams of protein. Might be fish, might be chicken, might be steak left over from last night. I douse it with Primal Kitchen salad dressings, My which favorite salad dressings in the world. You know, and I made them. <laughs> I'm glad you like them. I made them for me. I don't and, like. And, I love. I'm yeah, obsessed. Yeah, and I because the idea was. I want to dress the salad with something that tastes awesome, and the more I put on the salad, the better the salad becomes for me from, from a health standpoint. So because our dressings are made with avocado, avocado oil, oil, which yeah. is the healthiest of all the, all the fat choices in my estimation, um, you can put as much on as you want. And now I've, I've made a salad into a keto, a perfect keto meal with you know six or eight different types of, I might have mixed greens and cucumbers and a couple of cherry tomatoes and some stuff. And it might be 15 or maybe 17 total grams of carbs. And all those carbs, by the way, are locked into a fibrous matrix. So they're not going to be, you know, spilling glucose into the bloodstream immediately anyway. Ironically, that same salad, if you took the meat off, would be a perfect keto meal for anybody who's a mm. vegetarian. So, and that's the first sure. meal I'll have during the day. And I'm getting my micronutrients from the vegetables. I'm getting my fiber, so I'm feeding my gut bugs with that. And I'm getting 25 or 30 grams of, of uh, protein. I'm getting 25 or 30 grams of healthy fat. And I'm getting, you know, 15 to 17, 18 grams of carbs, which is not enough to have any adverse effect on my being in ketosis. So I have a couple follow-up questions. I think that's a couple interesting things. One... Curious, you mentioned you, you weren't doing butter bulletproof coffee in the morning, so I'm going to talk more about that and, and talk about how, how that relates to intermittent fasting and your, and your views on, on doing that, inserting whether it's butter, or coconut oil, that healthy fat in the morning. Two, I think it's really interesting. You don't. It sounds like you don't protein load right after a workout. And then three, talking about your your food pyramid. You know, you haven't really talked much about meat. And, yeah. And curious your thoughts about meat and where you know, paleo and, and the keto communities may be gone wrong and misconceptions. So Sure. Uh, well, first of all, the, the buttered coffee concept, it's not really a fast if you put 200 or 300 calories worth of fat in anything you consume uh, at any <laughs> point in time, right? So I wouldn't call it intermittent fasting if I interrupted any of that with 300 calories of something. So, and I don't, I, you know, I'd rather... I'd rather chew my calories than drink them. I think there's, look, I, I, mean, I want to be clear that I'm never ravenous. I never feel like I'm sacrificing to achieve some goal of lasting another couple of hours until I eat. I eat when I'm hungry. Uh, I stop eating when I'm no longer hungry. I enjoy every bite of food I put in my mouth intentionally. So you could prepare some bizarre, you know, kale turmeric salad for me and if it doesn't taste right to me i don't care how good it is i don't care how wonderful kale is and how amazing turmeric is if it doesn't taste great i'm not going to choke it down so i make sure that everything i eat tastes fabulous uh, part of that experience is chewing and savoring and again goes back to why i don't i choose not to do 
butter and the, the coffee. butter and the coffee yeah. kind of thing. Plus, you know, when you introduce that amount of fat into your body at seven o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning, and it, by the way, it works for a lot of people. But when you do that, you're not giving your body a reason to burn its own stored body fat. There's mm-hmm. enough fat in the system that the body goes, well, I got a couple of hundred calories. I I'm happy to burn off, but I'm not going to take it out of storage. Some people would put MCT oil in there and think, well, I'm creating, you know, the MCT oil will help prompt the liver to make some ketones and that'll fuel my brain. Again, I have no, I have no problem with people doing that. But if you want to be really efficient at this, you want your body to make its own ketones from your own stored body fat. That's really the, the, the end goal of being keto is not to see who has the highest ketone readout right. on a ketone strip or on a, or on a urine strip. You know how pee, how purple can you pee on a on a strip? <laughs> it's it's how good are you at burning fat? Well, no, and feeling good. And feeling good is ultimately the biggest, the, the arbiter of all that. In fact, in the book, the the keto reset diet, you know, we stair step you into earning the right to go keto. So you don't start keto out of the blocks. We do a twenty one day sort of transition period, removing some of those offending ingredients that we talked about early on in this in this podcast. Uh, the sugars, the industrial seed oils, the grains. And then at some point, 21 days in, we have a test. We have a midterm exam in the book, and you have to, <laughs> and you have to pass the exam with a 75 or more. But it isn't like, what are you measuring on your ketone strips? It's more like, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? How long can you go in the morning without eating and not get hangry? Can you do a workout uh, fasted and not eat after the workout? These are indicators that you're good at burning fat, and now you're ready to take the next step, which is to find another 30 or 40 grams of carbs a day that you could eliminate and really get into ketosis and start to make those ketones and start to build that metabolic machinery that uses ketones very efficiently. So you become metabolically flexible, you become metabolically efficient. Now, whether or not you choose to remain in ketosis, and we have a recommendation of six weeks in the book. It's not like hang out here for the rest of your life. Sure. It's like spend six weeks, get all the benefits, like 90% of the benefits are going to accrue in those six weeks. And then decide, do I want to stay here or do I want to go back to you know, a low-carb strategy that I had before? <clears throat> and so I live in what I call the, the, the keto zone. The keto zone is where, let's take a number of 100 grams of carbs a day. Some days I'm 50, some days I'm 150, so I'm plus or minus 50 grams. You ever like 1,000? Thousand grams of carbs a day ever? Like yeah, you sure. Ever, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say seven hundred would be uh, back in when I was running a lot. Yeah. Uh, seven hundred grams of carbs a day would be, you know, kind of a I could I could easily do that. Yeah, I I, I was notorious in college for being able to eat more than anyone, <laughs> including the football team. Um, yeah, it was. It's almost embarrassing now because some of my friends still refer to to me as Arnold Ziffel. Uh, we, Arnold Ziffel was the pig on Green Acres. Which, anyway, so long story, but but that was my nickname in college. <clears throat> so, yeah. So now to get to to the point where I'm today, which is to be free from from that tether that is when's the next meal. Right. To be able to go, geez, that's a six and a half hour flight across the country and there's no food. Okay, no problem. Uh, you know this. I'll just. It is what it is. I'm. I. I don't. In the old days, when I was an athlete, I would li- literally envision my body falling apart <laughs> if if I went more than four hours without eating. But that's the old carbohydrate paradigm, and that's what so many people to this day still live in that in that paradigm where they go from meal to meal. It's largely carb based. 
their understanding of the way the human body operates is that we must have carbohydrates, that we have to have glucose, that glucose is a preferred fuel. And, and with that mindset, you can go down that rabbit hole of having to eat multiple small meals every day and getting hangry and, and, and having your brain get woozy if you miss a meal. None of that happens when you are fat adapted and keto adapted. Now you shift to a fat burning paradigm. Now you shift to what was your factory setting at birth. We're all born with this ability to derive most of our energy from fat. If you look at human evolution and you look at how we got here today, go back two million years, we have this amazing, elegant system to take excess calories and store it as fat, to store it as fuel on our bodies that we can then, you know, in the absence of food a day or two or three days later, just take that stored fuel and burn it efficiently and have no loss of muscle mass, have no loss of cognition or acuity, have no loss of speed, have no depression or anything as a result of it. We have this ability. The problem is, in modern society, we still retain that ability to store fat really sure. well. But we've, based on our dietary choices and this, and this incredible ongoing access to crappy, sugary, simple foods, we never prompt our body to have to take fat out of storage and burn it as fuel uh, and create ketones because they're, they're, there's no glucose around. So the keto reset is about resetting your metabolism through this process to go back to that factory setting, to be efficient at burning fats, to be efficient at making ketones and burning ketones, to be less reliant on carbohydrates, and to not have to burn protein at all, to spare protein. Now, six weeks of this is enough to, to set you up for success for the rest of the year if you never go back into ketosis, as long as you don't go back to, you know, 300 grams of sure. carbs a day. That just sends a, a different set of signals. But as long as you're active, you're doing, and we talk about a lot of stuff in the book. We talk about workouts, we, you know, what types of workouts to do to, to, um, to enhance this metabolic efficiency. We talk about sleep because sleep is huge uh, in terms of... How much do you sleep a night? Uh, I try to get eight hours a night, sometimes eight and a half. It's mostly about regular bedtimes because I wake up at the same time every day. So if I were to stay up late, I'd still wake up at 6.30 or 6.45. But I think sleep is one of the most, you know, overlooked essential requirements for health. Sure. Uh, in our in our lives today, we talk about play and and stress reduction and a lot of these other things that have to do, by the way, with with just mitigating stress hormones. So sleep is also involved in that. The more, if you get a good night's sleep, you're less likely to be producing these stress hormones and particularly cortisol, which tends to offset the benefits of a keto diet. Cortisol tends to make you want to store fat and burn more carbohydrates and create more carbohydrates. So there are a lot of other lifestyle factors that we talk about in the book. So I want to go back to working out and protein. So you, it sounds like you don't load protein after working out. No. Um, and again, so it's like the myth. You know, I remember lifting weights as a teenager yeah, in the, college. Like, gotta have, gotta have, you know, the post workout. Yeah, the post workout protein right? shake within yeah. a half hour. Otherwise, it's all gone. It's all gone. You know, it's interesting. There are uh, a couple. First of all, there are no right answers in this field that we're in. They're just choices that are based on <laughs> science. So, if I were a CrossFit athlete training hard every day, doing metabolic stuff, you know, Metcon glycolytic work every day, I might think, okay, I have to replenish my glycogen stores as quickly as possible because I just worked out hard today and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. I'm going to have to consume a little bit more protein because God knows what happened when I did that. And if I'm in this carbohydrate 
paradigm, last thing I want to do is run out of carbohydrate and then have to tear into my muscle stores that I've worked so hard to build. So that was not just the not picking on CrossFit, but that was the bodybuilding mentality for the longest time, which was there's this window of opportunity, 45 minutes, within 45 minutes of a workout where you consume a post-workout meal. And uh, over the years, you know, the, the powers that be at Gatorade and the, some of those places said that it was a, a four to one ratio of carbs to protein. Sure. And it was all based on this carbohydrate paradigm, which was you need to refill glycogen stores because you don't want to run out of glycogen on your next workout and bonk and hit the wall and start tearing down muscle tissue. So first of all, I don't work out, I don't train hard on a day-to-day basis. I don't think it's appropriate for anyone, certainly not for me. So Whatever you're doing, it's working. I think so, <laughs> yeah. So, so the idea that you would want to even work out hard every day does, it doesn't give your body enough time to repair from, like if you did the workout hard enough to do the amount of damage that you intended to do, you got to give it the time to repair. Right. So you either didn't work out hard enough, all you did was beat yourself up, in which case you're going to do it again tomorrow, beat yourself up, and you're going to go do it again the next day. And that gets you nowhere. So there's no progress to be made there. So we say, um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Primal Endurance, and in that we talk about doing your long, slow stuff longer and slower, and we do talk about doing your, your, your fast stuff, your high-intensity stuff, shorter and harder. So like long walk, like ultimate frisbee, long walks, yeah. interval training. Yeah. Um, well, the interval training is separate. But if you're like a cyclist or a runner, you know, and you're training in that cardio, cardio zone of 75 to 85. Just like I'm thinking of the average person who wants to stay fit, healthy. Like yeah, the active. average person, just a lot of walking, a lot of easy jogging. Don't get your heart rate above 180 minus your age um, for for any long period of time because that's that's your maximum fat burning heart rate we know that to be pretty true um so but back to the to, to the fueling thing so the uh, that was one philosophy was the post-workout meal replenished glycogen and and kept you from tearing down muscle tissue but the other version of that and another it's just a choice and which the one that i ascribe to is at the end of a workout if you did it right, if you did it hard, then there was a pulse of growth hormone and testosterone that occurred as a result of that workout. Insulin can blunt both of those. So the last thing I want to do is take in a high-carbohydrate, protein-laden beverage that's going to raise my insulin and blunt that growth hormone and testosterone pulse that I was looking for that's going to enhance the repair of the muscle tissue that I was stressing in the workout with the intention of becoming stronger and fitter. A lot of people will do this now. A lot of people will go, particularly those in the, in the there's a website called Keto Gains. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luis Villasenor has been doing this for a long time. He's a very smart guy. Uh, there's a lot of empirical evidence on that site that you can not eat after a workout uh, and benefit highly from having done that workout fasted and not eating after the workout and then addressing whatever protein or glycogen or rebuilding aspects you need to address hours later and so something you talked about earlier too your diet sounds like greens vegetables are a cornerstone of your diet and i think you know and you being one of the leaders in paleo and ketosis you know the godfather of paleo in a lot of ways just uh, don't call me the grandfather not the grandfather uh you know, I think a lot of people out there, when they think paleo or ketosis, they're thinking, oh, he's eating bacon and steaks all day. And, and we haven't really talked about meat. So let's talk about meat and, and the misconceptions and, yeah. and what really is appropriate or not appropriate. Yeah. So one of the things that happens, uh, well, that happened to me early on in my investigation here was that uh, 
you know, I saw that, that there's the possibility of overconsuming protein, that that's probably unnecessary for a lot of people. I think that unless you're like a, you know, world-class glycolytic athlete, that anything more than 140 grams of, of protein a day is, is excessive. At the same time, having gone into this keto research and seen what happens with the body and how economical the body becomes. Remember, we're talking about metabolic flexibility, and part of that flexibility is becoming so good at burning fats and ketones that you don't have to rely on the recycling of amino acids to become substrate for energy. So there is a protein-sparing effect of being low-carb and keto. That protein-sparing effect of necessity just suggests that we don't have to eat that much protein because there's always some amount of amino acids circulating in this amino acid sink that we have, either in the bloodstream or in the liver or even parts of the muscle tissue. And that then leads to the assumption and understanding that we probably don't need to consume much more than, say, 0.7 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass per day unless, again, we're in some highly explosive daily kind of pursuit. Now, the other part of that equation would be, you know, what happens if I have like, you know, a a 24-ounce steak at one sitting? Well, you know, that's a lot of food. And when you become keto-adapted and fat-adapted, you find, first of all, you have to force yourself to eat that much food. That's a lot of food. Mm -hmm. So many people who are keto, myself included, have discovered that it takes... 30% 30% fewer calories per day to maintain mass, to maintain energy, to actually build muscle if you want to, uh, to not get sick, uh, and, and clearly and most importantly, to not get hungry. Because all this falls away. It all falls apart if you get hungry. So, you know, as I said earlier, one of the most compelling parts of this eating strategy is how it, how it impacts your hunger, your cravings, and your appetite and diminishes them to the point that you get, oh, wow, I just... I'm not that hungry. I don't need to eat. I'm so good at burning fat. I'm so good at making ketones. I'm so efficient. I'm so flexible. You know, all of these things kind of fall into place. And and you realize I don't need that much protein on a daily basis. And that's the other thing about protein is we sometimes we look at it almost on a meal-to-meal basis. Certainly a bodybuilding community used sure. to do that. Oh, yeah. You know, I got to have 20 grams or 30 grams per meal three times a day, and if I'm a bodybuilder and I'm trying to do five meals a day, i got to carry my Tupperware around with me, you know, with all my little steaks and, sure. and chicken breasts without skin and, you know, all of that. So what are your favorite sources of protein? Well, I mean, my, my favorite food altogether would be lamb. I mean, I yeah. love lamb. I had some last night. Here I am in New York City. I went to a great place, Nassau Lamb. You know, I, I, like, I like salmon. We have a um, macadamia-crusted mahi-mahi in the cookbook, uh, part of the keto reset diet. That's one of my favorite meals. I mean, I love a variety of food, so sure. I, so I, I, it's hard to pick a favorite because I'm so you know open to that kind of variety. On the other hand, I have like my five go-to meals that probably represent you know eighty percent of my meals, which are heavy in vegetables and yeah. So I'm a big fan of broccoli and Brussels sprouts. So you know I'll probably have broccoli a couple times a week. Uh, just because I love it, and I slather it in butter. Broccoli is again one of those one of those vegetables that, if you look at the micronutrient uh, breakdown, it's incredible. Better than kale? Yeah, it's right up there with kale. Right. Kale and spinach. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! Uh, and and from its again from its carbohydrate component, it's like ridiculous how low it is in carbs. You know, average person servings because that's how much I might have in an evening. 
you know, might have, again, 10 or 11 total grams of carbs. And then whatever protein source I'm eating, whether it's a chicken or it's a, some fish or some steak, has effectively zero grams of carbs. So it's easy for me to go through a day and go, wow, I only had 40 grams of carbs today. And it was well dispersed between two meals. And if I have a snack, it might be some dark chocolate or, you know, a handful of macadamia nuts. But Yeah, so, so nuts. You bring up nuts. Yeah. And we were talking about peanuts earlier. <laughs> and, and let's talk about peanuts and nuts. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, the idea... You're making that, a lot of people happy right now. Well, <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of this research over the past decades on food, and, and I've watched how the pendulum has swung way out one side and then come back to the other side. And initially, when the discussion in the paleo community was that all lectins are bad, and particularly uh, those in legumes, and especially those in peanuts, you know, are bad for you... Your friend Dr. Gundry... Yeah, and yeah. I mean, even before even before Stephen, who's a who's a dear friend of mine, and and I love the guy, and I think he's onto something. I, you know, I, I go back to Lauren Cordain and his sure you know initial discussion of lectins, because uh, he was the you know the source in those days, and there weren't many others. I thought well, that's that's a interesting hypothesis. I think I'll I'll go with that for a while. Uh, over the years, I've kind of changed my mind on the whole lectin discussion and thought to myself, well. You know, if legumes are well prepared and soaked and pressure cooker, pressure cooker, and all of that, then there's probably no reason, you know, not to to incorporate them into your eating strategy. Not to make them the basis of your diet, but to certainly not to exclude them uh, on principle alone because they contain quote lectins. And the primal blueprint, which is my original life way and eating strategy, was always looking at how could I be as inclusive as possible of these foods. Not exclusive, but mm-hmm. as inclusive. Show me a reason why we shouldn't include this, at least at some point in our diets. So I've kind of reversed my stance on the legume question on a broad spectrum. And part of that, by the way, has to do with the, starting four years ago, the emergent discussion of the gut biome. And what sort of substrate are you providing in your diet that's going to feed a healthy gut biome? Uh, resistant starch being the, the sort of the operative discussion. And a lot of these legumes, when properly prepared and pressure cooked, um, offer substrate that, that a healthy gut biome would thrive on. So some of the things that are on a FODMAP elimination program um, when you're trying to cure your gut biome, might be the very same things that you might want to reintroduce mm. once you've cleaned up your gut biome and become healthy again. So, as I said earlier, there sometimes there are no, it's not black and white, there are no right or wrong answers here. There are choices based on the science. So as I look at lectins as a sort of topic of general discussion, are lectins, you know, poisonous to humans? What is a poison? You know, sometimes a, a toxin in microdoses is a hormetic event that prompts a little bit of a response that the body might perceive as positive over time. That same, quote, toxin delivered on a regular basis might become actually toxic and might uh, prove deleterious to health. So we come to, we come to peanuts. And I'm, of all the things I gave up in the last 15 years, peanuts were the toughest for me to give up. <laughs> and I've been kind of reintroducing peanuts back into my diet uh, you know, as an experiment uh, with no adverse effects. And I'm wondering, you know, the extent to which, you know, some people might be able to reincorporate some of these legumes, and peanuts are a legume, uh, you know, back into their diet and, and do so 
with, again, with the knowledge that there's some science on one side of this issue sure. and there's some on the other side. And we are all biochemically individual in some cases. That bioindividuality, by the way, it's tough for me to say, sure. bioindividuality <laughs> is, a, um, is an interesting concept because we all burn fat the same way. We all build muscle the same way. We all address uh, infection the same way. It's just the degree to which we do it that differs among individuals. Um, an extra allele here, an extra, you know, familial uh, contribution from the gene pool that, right. that predisposes us a little bit more or a little bit less than others. So as we go to looking to what can I incorporate into my diet and our you know, our pinto beans okay, our <laughs> lentils okay, is um, wild rice okay, our peanuts okay. I think one, if you've done the work and you've done the, the experiment yourself and you've observed uh, the effect of eliminating certain foods, then it's just equally as valid to observe the effect of reintroducing those foods. I agree. So, so what is the future of wellness? Like, where do you think we're going to be in three years in terms of what we're discussing, advances in technology? Like, what has you excited? Where do you think things are going? Three years. Yeah, or one year, two. I know no, it's hard to— No, I just to, want to be sure you didn't say 30 years. No, 30—I don't know what the hell is going to be happening in 30 <laughs> yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. A couple of years out. Yeah, um, three years. You know, I think um, that there's—we're cl- probably close to a tipping point in medicine where some of the more aware physicians are starting to understand that— some of these diseases of civilization like obesity, certainly type 2 diabetes, can be completely cured through appropriate dietary intervention. And this is a novel concept for most mm. physicians. It was even 10 years ago, you might have had 2% of them go, yeah, I, I can see how that would work. Now you've got maybe 10% of them going, yeah, that, that not only will work, but we're going to incorporate that into our, into our strategy. And so in terms of wellness, the, if the cutting edge is the medical community— and not cutting edge. That's that's a that's a double entendre <laughs> right there. But if if they're the leading kind of voice and and still perceived as the best place to go to get wellness advice, it better happen fairly soon that they recognize that virtually every disease of civilization, and we're talking about ba- ba- essentially every autoimmune disease, obesity, heart disease, cancer risk in most cases can be mitigated substantially by lifestyle choices that include diet and certainly it includes sleep and sun exposure and a lot of these things that we talked about the primal blueprint for a long time. I mean sun exposure is like a, this weird thing like well who would even consider that as a as a as a critical factor or critical component sure. in wellness but you know most people depend on sunlight to produce vitamin D and vitamin D is one of the most critical vitamins it actually ought to be classified as a hormone. In, in regulating your immune system. So we've had this bizarre tendency over the years for physicians to say, well, stay out of the sun. It's dangerous. You'll get skin cancer. And yet there are those of us on this side of that equation who would suggest that probably more people have gotten cancer from having avoided the sun and a diminished amount of vitamin D than have had issues with d- directly related to sun exposure that were, that were life-threatening. I know that's a bold statement, but I, sure. I'm, I'm going to make it here. The other thing that I would suggest is that if everybody ate this way uh, in a sort of low-carb, with, with, with the intention of reducing the amount of glucose that you burn in a lifetime, 
And that could be keto and it could be low carb. It could also be uh, an appropriate vegan or vegetarian vegetarian choice. If everybody ate along these guidelines, I am quite certain that within 18 months, we could save a trillion dollars off the national health care bill. Because if you Mm -hmm. look at all of the reasons that people wind up in hospital or wind up under a doctor's care, you know, 33 million people type 2 diabetics. I would go out of limits to say, you know, 90% of those could be cured through some dietary intervention. There are some startup companies now that are looking sure. at this as being a huge opportunity through dietary intervention. So speaking of companies, what's what's next for Primal Kitchen? I, you know I love your bars, your dressing. Like, what, what do you have? What's next? What can people expect? Well, we just introduced our uh, collagen uh, drink line. So, you know, I'm a big fan of collagen supplementation. Uh, I think it's one of those nutrients. It's uh, basically a macronutrient. It's a form of protein that we don't get enough of. And certainly been touted highly in the last decade for skin, hair, and nails, and things like that. But I've been using it to support my tendons and ligaments and joints because I'm at 64. I'm still trying to play like a 20-something. I'm on that <laughs> frisbee pitch trying to you know keep up on a defensive run to the end zone with, with some former wide receiver. <laughs> Maybe inappropriately. I don't know. But so far, so good. And I actually had some severe Achilles issues years ago that I feel pretty strongly I was able to um, address by um, by specifically supplementing with with collagen. So I'm the biggest fan of collagen for people who are doing any sort of activity that involves range of motion or mobility. So whether you're lifting weights, whether you're doing sports, whether you're doing yoga, where you're putting your joints through tremendous stretching. So we have this collagen. Uh, it's it's called collagen fuel. Um, it's now available in chocolate, vanilla, and we have a an unflavored version that we can. You can add to whatever you want to add it to. More of the dressings in the pipeline. In fact, we just now have introduced a balsamic vinaigrette. Ah. That's my new favorite. I mean, every time we introduce a new dressing, it's my new favorite until the next one. <laughs> but it's it's pretty fantastic. We have an egg-free mayo coming down uh, the pipeline. Even though I'm a big fan of eggs, and you know we, our mayo is made with avocado oil, it's quite literally the healthiest mayonnaise you could possibly find on the marketplace. We also recognize that some people do have issues with eggs. We're making an egg-free version of that. Very excited about that. So we have more flavors of mayo coming. We have going to fill out the dressing line. Uh, We've got a couple of bar flavors coming down. Uh, Sign me up. Peanut, a peanut butter bar. All right. Um, Peanuts are okay. Peanuts are okay, people. (laughs) Um, For those of you who are craving that that sort of uh, a taste sensation. You know, mint chocolate chip. Um, and we've got a keto bar probably a couple months in the oh, pipeline. Wow. Yeah, so for full-on keto. Uh, I'm in. So you also live in Malibu, and we were talking about this earlier. You you know hang out with amazing, healthy, thriving people. Darren Hamilton, Gabby Reese, Rick Rubin, like amazing people, part of yeah. this, like, quote-unquote, Malibu mafia. I'm curious, like, being being someone who studies things and, and people, like, what, what traits do you find in people like like the people we mentioned, you were thriving, successful. You were saying like they're onto something. What, they're, they're doing something right. Yeah. How do they inspire you? What are the commonalities? <laughs> Very interesting you say that because in the, in that crowd that you just named, nobody has sold out. They are their own persons. Uh, they're grounded. They're sure of who they are. They are passionate about what they do. They have a purpose, literally, that gets them out of bed every morning. They're excited about exploring new opportunities. 
And so we could talk about these people individually or collectively, but you know, we have a, a group of us who look at investment opportunities in the angel investing yep. world. And we, you know, we sort of have a, a collective conscious that looks at these opportunities and decides whether they're you know, right for us or whether they're something that could change the world. We have meals together and, and just share you know, ideas and excitement about what's out there. So we kind of, I would suggest that we act as each other's mentors. So there's a, there's a mentor, a willingness to be um, involved as a mentor. You might, I think the word that's used a lot now is mastermind. You know, it's, mm-hmm. like, it's like a mastermind group. But, but it's also um, self-selecting in some regards because it's people who chose to move to Malibu because <laughs> it's such an awesome vibe. You know, it's got a it's a very low key place that is close to a frenetic environment that is Los Angeles or even Santa Monica. But Malibu's kinda laid back. It's kinda you can go down to the beach, you can you know, there's you can go to a restaurant and, and hang out and not be um, you know, inundated with uh with TMZ. TMZ exactly. <laughs> so there's a very cool vibe there that um, lends itself to creativity, that lends itself to happiness and, 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 and a groundedness that I haven't found anywhere else. I probably spent six weeks or more in each of 20 cities in my journey across the U.S. from Maine, where I grew up in that small fishing village, you know, to, to New York, to Philadelphia, to Chicago, to Portland, to Seattle, to Bend, Oregon, to San Francisco and the whole Bay Area scene, to Florida. And when I got to Malibu, it was like, okay, this is it. There's no, everywhere I lived prior to that, it's like, okay, this is awesome, but what's next? Right. In Malibu, it's kind of like, you know what? There's no what's next. This is, this is pretty spectacular. So what keeps you up at night and what has you excited in the morning? I mean, I, I'm, I'm up at night because I'm involved in a lot of business ventures uh, right now, probably too many. <laughs> um, and m- many of them are just awesome and are, and are forging ahead beautifully. But, you know, the one or two that require additional attention, sometimes they don't keep me up at night. But if I wake up, I can't go back to sleep. Sure. Um, but I've, I've actually been involved in a, in a sort of a new uh, way of thinking um, I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly. It's called the three principles. And it's basically how the mind is, you know, it, it, we're just a thought machine and we're just creating all these thoughts. And sometimes our thoughts can drag us down and sometimes our thoughts can lift us up. And it's really the choice is up to us. And it sounds a little glib to say, well, it's that easy because it's not. It's really difficult. But to be able to corral your thoughts and just push, push certain things aside in the middle of the night and go, you know what? All I'm going to do is worry about that. And it's three o'clock in the morning. I can't. There's nothing I can do about it right now you know, except worry. And that's not doing me any good. And it's not going to change the outcome. So, you know, try to replace it with another. So thought. what are those three principles briefly? Well, the three, I just, it's, um, it's, it's thought, mind, and consciousness. There, there are three v- versions of what happens in the brain. And again, I don't want to get too much sure. into it. If you, if you, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. If you Google Sydney Banks, uh, you'll discover, uh, a, amazing individual who sort of came up upon this epiphany about, 40 years ago and has been uh, espousing it ever since and it's just it's an it's an it's the latest thing that i'm interested in that i find holds promise for me personally in my otherwise mm, stressful life i say stressful because because I, I make it that way sure you know so what you know so that's what might keep me up at night and then i'm just completely grateful for the success of primal kitchen foods um the publishing company that i've that i've grown from a pup uh, as a hobby, and now we've published 35 books. 
Wow. The new book, Keto Reset Diet, is actually put out by Harmony. Uh, which everyone has to go by. Which everyone has to go by. Yeah. But, um, you know, and my kids are now running a restaurant that we have. We have a, these Primal Kitchen restaurants uh, that are springing up throughout the country. of one in wow. South Bend, Indiana. You bring one to New York? Bring me a franchisee who wants to put one up in New York, and we'll talk. Maybe they're listening right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's fast, casual breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's cage-free eggs in the frittatas, um, you know, power protein pancakes, grain-free pancakes, oh. chicken waffles, uh, you know, organic chicken with grain-free waffles. Uh, good. You know, bone broth on tap all day long, kombucha on tap, gluten-free beers, paleo dry-farmed wines, um, you know, everything you, you'd want in a clean-eating establishment. And by the way, great tasting food. I mean, these are all sure. kind of signature dishes. So last question, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice back in your 20s, what would that be? It's really enjoy the journey, enjoy the process. Um, I look back on the number of times that I thought that things will be great when this happens. Mm-hmm. You know, when I finally get there, then things will be great. And I realized uh, there is no there. It's just it's, there's, there's now, there's here. But the, the there is sort of some ephemeral goal that I think everyone's it's appropriate to have goals, but enjoy the process. Enjoy where you are right now. Have gratitude for what you've done thus far. Sure. Have gratitude for what it's taken you and, and the, you know, the, the, the work and the thought and the, and the love and the effort that you've put into getting where you are right now. Be ever grateful for that. Be willing to alter and pivot on your uh, goal path if that's required. But more importantly and and more appropriately just enjoy every possible moment in that moment that you can amen to that it's funny we have two pieces of art in our apartment one is a neon sign that says trust the process and the other one is gratitude there you go so amen to that thank you so much mark everyone you got to pick up the keto reset diet reboot your metabolism in 21 days and burn fat forever pick it up everyone thank you so much 